Okay, how's everybody doing this morning? You hear me? We're good? I got the thumbs up from Brian, so we're good. Um, okay, today is a special day in the Stewart household uh, for a couple of reasons. The first and by far the most important reason is that uh, 21 years ago we were stationed in Washington, D.C., and uh, Trisha and I brought home this beautiful baby girl uh, who is not here today, so I can embarrass her without her knowing about it. Um, but anyway, and, and she's just been a joy and a delight for 21 years. And so it's, today is Abigail's birthday, and so I just wanted to wish her a happy birthday. Um, we love her very much, and I'll embarrass her in the second service too. Um, the second and far less important reason that this is a special day for the stewards is that today is the anniversary of the founding of the Air Force. So in 1947, the Air Force became a separate service. It used to be part of the Army Air Corps, and, uh, and then it became its own separate service. And so as some of you may or may not know, uh, Trisha and I served for 27 years in the Air Force, and, and I'm thankful that I got to serve my country, um, and I'm especially grateful that I didn't have to be in the Army, the Navy, or the Marines. <laughs> and Kent walks in at the perfect time. That's just, that's, that's a God thing right there, guys. Okay, let me pray because I need to repent of my, uh... okay. Father, we do thank you for this day, dear God. Uh, just uh, thinking about the beauty of this day, the clouds and, and the sun. And, and Father God, you gave us a new day of life. And uh, so we just praise you for that, dear Lord. Father, I just pray that uh, this time that we have, we uh, draw aside and we make much of you, uh, dear God, uh, because it is all about you. And uh, so we just thank you for that, dear God. Uh, let us glorify and honor you. Amen. Okay, um, you guys remember a couple weeks ago, it was, uh, we had the earthquake. The earthquake was in Oklahoma, and we felt it. Did everybody feel it? Or, okay. And so the house shakes, and then you're, uh, I don't know about you guys, but Trisha and I, our equilibrium was off for a little bit, so it wasn't uh, kind of a little bit dizzy, not not to the effect, you know, where you put the bat on your head and you, you twirl around and then you try to run in a, in a straight line. Have you ever done that? Am I the only one? I know Matt's done it, right? Yeah. Okay. So not that kind of dizzy, but just a little bit off. You know there's something that has just is not quite right. Um, can I confess something to you guys? We're family, right? You guys look worried all of a sudden. But, uh, uh, you know, the past year and a half, almost two years, I felt like that. Okay? So I look at the culture around us that is just absolutely going crazy. Um, we have a toxic civil and political environment. Uh, you know, I'm not going to be political and... and and go into any of that. We have two horrible candidates. Um, you know, the elders, as we've been talking and we've been praying about membership, it, it's born out of a concern for the church, for the flock, and as we talk about what's going on in the culture and we worry about you guys and, and how this is going to affect you and, and how can we shepherd and protect and build walls to protect you from what's going on. You know, I, I don't know about anybody else and or any of the other elders, but it's easy to look at all that chaos and to alternate between just rage on the one hand and despair on the other. You know, because you just look. It, things are just going crazy, okay? So when we come to 
uh, a passage of Scripture like we're going to look at today, uh, it is a balm, B-A-L-M, balm to my soul. All right? Because it's, it's a very short passage of Scripture, but it, it is a promise. Okay? And it is um, it's a promise that is built on bedrock that we can, we can sink an anchor into. We can hold on to it. And it's full of hope. And so that's my prayer for us today, is that whatever I say, that out of the Scripture you get hope. And you get what God intended for us to get. Okay? So you can look on your study sheet. We're going to be in Matthew 16, 18. It's just a very short passage of Scripture. And I want to set up what I'm going to say a little bit. I apologize, guys. I've got allergies or something. Okay, so earlier this year, um, the Billy Graham Center for Evangelism at Wheaton College in Chicago and Lifeway Research, uh, Lifeway is the research arm of the Southern Baptist Convention. The two of them collaborated and they did a project where they looked at some existing research on the state of the church and then they did some of their own research on the state of the church. So they had surveys and they looked at demographics and all that kind of stuff that goes into research. And they just released some of their preliminary findings. The results were kind of really a mixed bag for the church. It wasn't horrible, but it wasn't great either. Um, This is how Ed Stetzer, who used to be the former head of Lifeway Research, and now he's the president of the Billy Graham Center for Evangelism. This is how he summed up on the findings. Christianity is on the decline. Americans have given up on God. And the nuns, that's N-O-N-E-S, those who have no religious ties are on the rise. It is indeed true that parts of the Christian church in America are struggling, while a growing number of Americans are far from God. That's pretty sobering. Um, Kind of a depressing statistic. Uh, The statistics he used are equally sobering. So, They looked at the Pew Research, and in 2007, when they first did it, the number of people that said they were religiously unaffiliated, so the nuns, was 16%. So, yeah, that's not a bad number. By 2015, that number was 23%. So almost uh, one in four Americans, right? And in that same time period, the number of people that identified as Christians, so that would be Uh, just general Christian, think mainline denominations or evangelicals, uh, dropped 10% from 80% to 70%. So not a huge drop. You think 70% is still pretty good, but it's still a significant drop. Uh, Stetzer concludes again that American religion is simultaneously growing and in decline. Fewer people claim to be Christians, but churchgoers... Those who regularly attend services are holding steady in some segments and thriving in others. For example, mainline denominations are shrinking. So mainline denominations will be uh, Episcopalians, Presbyterians, Methodists. While non-denominational evangelical churches, that's us, are growing, particularly in urban areas. So you guys probably didn't need me give you a bunch of statistics to know that uh, the church in America 
is in a great state of flux, okay? And, and these statistics bear out hopefully what I'm going to talk about, right? Because it says churchgoers are growing and, and they're holding steady. And so I want to look at our text today. Uh, I just want to provide a little bit of context. So this, the setting for it is uh, Jesus is with his disciples and they are in the region of Caesarea Philippi. Earlier in the chapter, the Sadducees and the Pharisees have asked for probably the umpteenth time for a sign for Jesus to prove that he's the Messiah. And he's told them, I'm not going to give you a sign. The only sign you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. And they totally didn't get that. And so he and his disciples, they depart, and they go to the region of Caesarea Philippi, which is up north of Israel, um, almost as far north as you can get and still be in Israel. And so when our passage takes place, they're walking back down to Jerusalem, where Jesus is going to be crucified. The disciples don't know that yet. And as they're walking, Jesus, <clears throat> excuse me, Jesus asks his disciples, who do the people say that I am? And so they're talking, and, and the disciples say, well, well, some say you're Elijah, because that was prophesied that Elijah would come back. Or some say you're Jeremiah, or some say uh, you're one of the prophets. And then Jesus asks the question, he says, well, who do you say I am? Who do you guys say I am? lived together for three years, we've walked together, we've worked together, you've seen miracles. Who do you say I am? And, and Peter gives a divine, divinely inspired answer, and he says that you are the Messiah. Um, and then Jesus answers Peter, and he says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now we're going to go on a we're going to go on a very small rabbit trail about this, okay? Usually when we teach mosaic, when I teach mosaic Wednesday nights, if we go on a rabbit trail, we have to do wall sits because we want the boys to stay on topic. But I'm not going to make you do wall sits because I'm the one taking us on the rabbit trail, and I don't want to do wall sits anyway. So, okay, so I just want to spend a couple of minutes talking about the Roman Catholic version of this verse and the Protestant version of this verse, because they're wildly different. So the Roman Catholics look at this verse where Jesus says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the Roman Catholics say, well, that's where we get the papacy from, because Jesus is, is anointing his guy Peter, and he says, Peter, you're the rock. You're the rock I'm going to build the church on. And later on in the passage, Jesus is going to say, I give you the keys to the kingdom, what you bind on earth is bound in heaven. What you loose on earth is loose in heaven. And so the Catholics think, well, yeah, that's Peter's our guy. And he is, was going to be the first pope. He's going to be the successor to Christ. And then on down the line, we have the pope, who is the head of the church. That's just not borne out by scripture. Okay? It's just not. You, you don't read anywhere... In the rest of Scripture, you don't read it in Acts, you don't read it in Paul's writings, you don't read it in uh, even Peter's own writings, where Peter had a preeminent spot among the disciples. Okay? If you look in, um, the, you know, the best you could probably, if you look in Acts 15, where the Jerusalem Council, Paul had come and, and wanted to know that he wasn't preaching in vain, James was the primary spokesman, not Peter. And if you look in Ephesians 2.20, you, 
you know, Paul says that the, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So the best you can say is that Peter is part of that. He's part of that foundation. But it's a stretch to get the papacy from that. Okay? And of course, the Protestant view, which I think is the right view, is that Christ, as the Savior of the world, that declaration, that statement, is the foundation of the church. Uh, nonetheless, this was a pretty astounding promise from Jesus. You know, at this point, the disciples, they didn't really grasp what he was doing. Um, they weren't really clear about the whole, I've got to die and rise again. They still was this idea that the Messiah was going to usher in the kingdom of David, and that it was going to be a, a political kingdom um, the Romans were going to get thrown out and that the kingdom of David was going to be ushered back in. But Jesus, uh, stating the obvious, right, is different. So he doesn't see time in a linear progression the way that we do. So Jesus understands when he's making this promise, he is, um, and I'm using linear terms to describe a nonlinear thing. I, it's just a limitation of being human. You know, he looks back to the foundation of the world where the Trinity determined that this was how they were going to bring the family of the church family together. And he looks forward to uh, the marriage supper of the Lamb where it's all consummated and we're all safely in heaven. And so Jesus says, that's how he makes the promise, that I am going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. There used to be an old saying, um, probably, who's over 40 in here? Yeah, so you might remember this saying. If you're under 40, you probably won't know what I'm talking about. Uh, there used to be an old saying that when somebody would say something and they wanted to make sure that you knew they were telling the truth or that uh, there was some veracity behind it, they say, you can take that to the bank. Has anybody heard that? Yeah. Okay, it, meaning that their statement was as good as money in the bank. All right. Um, when a government issues bonds, when the government issues, the United States government issues bonds, that bond is backed by the full faith and credit of the United States government. Okay? Now, we can argue about how likely it is that the government's going to default. Maybe that wasn't a, maybe that wasn't a good analogy. Uh, I won't use that the second service. Uh, but anyway, you buy a bond based on the full faith and credit of the United States government. Okay? So when you put faith in something, you're basing that faith on what authority the entity making that promise has. So that's a long way to say that Jesus has all authority, and so he has all authority to make the promise that he will build his church. Okay, now I want us to look at, let's look at the promise itself and a couple of things about um, the promise the first is, who's going to do the building? Is it us? We're going to build the church? Is it, is it people? Is it a human institution? Is it, is it a bunch of clever guys that are, that are going to build the church? No, it's not. No. Jesus said that I will build my church. I will build my church. It doesn't depend on our talents, our abilities, and our efforts. That doesn't mean that we don't have a responsibility, and it doesn't mean that we don't have things that we do to partner with God, with Christ, to build the church. We do, and we're going to talk about those in a minute. But 
God is the one that does the building. And we could see that there's several places in Scripture. I just want to look at, at a few where we can see that clearly. So if you look in John 6.44, uh, Jesus says that no man can come to the Father except by him. So Jesus is the only way to the Father. Um, if you look in Acts 2.47, it does me good to hear you guys flipping through your Bibles. Um, Acts 2.47, the second chapter of Acts is, uh, Peter has just preached his sermon. 3,000 were added. Remember the Holy Spirit falls and, and the Jews that, um, and the proselytes that were in Israel heard everybody talking in their own language. And they said, well, these guys are drunk. Uh, that's why they're speaking in tongues. And that's, that wasn't the case. And so, it's talking about um, how people were added to the church. And in 247, it says that um, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Okay, so Peter's preaching. They're, they're doing signs and wonders. But it was the Lord that was adding to the church day by day. Uh, Ephesians 2.5 says that God raised us up with Christ. And Ephesians 2.8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Listen, this, this should be liberating for us, right? It should be liberating. Take a great weight <laughs> off of our shoulders. Uh, it's not up to me to save you. It's not up to you to save me. It's not up to uh, me <clears throat> and the other elders to build the church. It's not up to you to build the church, right? Christ is going to build the church. And that's not a license to be lazy. Uh, it's not a license to be complacent. Look, we can, we can be zealous. As the scripture says we can be zealous for good works, and we can work hard knowing that the results don't depend on us. I know that seems counterintuitive, but that's clearly what the scriptures teach. We're all fallible people. We take uh, our best efforts are tainted by selfishness or or sin. We confuse we confuse our agenda for Christ's agenda. Uh, we don't love people the way that we should. You know, we mess up probably a thousand times a day. Listen, the, the good news is, is that God takes all, all the hot mess that we are and he works out of our efforts and he does something astounding. All right? Usually when we get out of the way, usually when God does something astounding, it's because we, in our mind, have spectacularly failed. All right? And that's by design so that God gets the glory for that. So it's not, you don't point to that and think, I did that. Right? God is the one working, and God is the one that gets the glory. Okay, God is, uh, Christ is also building something personal. So he's not building an organization, per se. Um, Jesus says that I will build my church. Right? So he's, he's taking possession. My church. The church belongs to Christ. And that means more than just that uh, he started it, or it's named after him. Look, think of all the, the affectionate terms that the Bible uses for the church. Um, 
In the Gospels, I don't know if these are on your study sheet. Um, just a quick, the study sheet, I always, it's always an afterthought to me, so I apologize it's not complete. And then I get to it, and I think, oh, i got to get Patty in the study sheet, and then I just, so, anyway. That was, a, that was another bunny trail. I'll have to do wall squats after. Sorry. Um, think of all the affectionate terms that, that the Bible uses. So in the Gospels, Jesus consider, compares himself to the bridegroom. He says he's the good shepherd. In uh, one of my favorite passages of Scripture, Ephesians 5, we're called the body of Christ. In, in verses 25 through 27, I want to read those. This is a wonderful love note from the Holy Spirit about how Christ loves the church and how he feels about the church. Says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Listen, guys, it's personal with Jesus, right? It's not some abstract uh, thing. It's not an impersonal organization. It's personal with him. He set his love on us. And he is going to tirelessly work and to make sure that we are nurtured and cared for. Okay, so while it's true that Christ is going to build the church, it doesn't depend on us, um, it's equally true that we have a responsibility to partner with and help to build the church. Uh, it's actually an amazing privilege, right? So we, we know who we are, we know what we're like, and, and yet, we're the means that Christ is using to build the church. So how do we partner with Christ in building the church? We have some individual responsibilities and we have corporate responsibilities. I'm going to talk about the individual responsibilities first. Um, 1 Peter 2.5 says that we are being built up as living stones to be a spiritual house. And so the first thing we need to do um, is we need to be good stones. You know, when Solomon was building a temple, um, the stones were quarried far away from the Temple Mount, and they were cut and they were shaped to exact specifications. And so when they got to the Temple Mount, you didn't hear hammers and chisels, but they were placed into the, the foundation of the temple exactly where they were supposed to go, and they were, they were just ready. Well, in a sense, Christ does that with us. So we're, we're saved and we're placed into the body exactly where we're supposed to be. But the opposite of that is also true. Because Christ takes rough stones and he places them into the body. They're not shaped. They're not polished. Uh, they fit where they're supposed to be, but they, but they don't look nice. They're, they don't look great. And over the course of however long it is that we have the opportunity and the privilege to walk with Christ, um, he's shaping us. So he's sanding off those rough edges. He's molding us. All right? So that at some point, we die and we're glorified and we're just these beautiful, 
fantastic stones. Um, the theological term for that is sanctification. And so, how we become good stones is, is we need to pay attention to our sanctification. And here again, just like in most parts of Scripture, right, we feel the tension between what our responsibility is and what God's responsibility is, what God does and what we do. Um, and so I want to just look at a pas- couple of passages of Scripture to talk about, talk about that tension. Second uh, Peter chapter 1. So it's a great passage. If you're, if you're thinking about sanctification, go to, go to 2 Peter chapter 1. It gives us some concrete steps that we can take. This is what Peter says. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours... And are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then Paul says something similar in Philippians 2. It says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So again, um, we see that there's effort, and but it's God that's got to work the effort. And we tend, as fallen people, to default between one of two extremes. On the one hand, we think, well, I'm a Christian and I'm saved, and either by uh, osmosis or photosynthesis or some other natural process, I'm just going to sit and I'm going to percolate and 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 I'm going to be mature and I. There's no effort on my part, right? It's just going to happen because uh, Christ has said, or Paul said, he who began a good work in you will complete it. And so, so I'm good, right? The scripture says he's going to complete it and I don't have to do anything. And on the other extreme is we're saved and we think, well, I'm going to, I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to read through the Bible every year. I am going to pray for 30 minutes a day. I'm going to serve the church. I'm going to do all these things, right? And what happens? Uh, you make it to, you make it out of Genesis, and then uh, you get to uh, the rest of it, and you just you don't read the Bible again for the rest of the year. You haven't prayed. You're cranky. You don't like going to church. We just flame out, right? Because it's all on our efforts. It's all we're we're going to gut through it and do it, okay? The reality is, is that, and, and I don't know what this looks like practically, it just works, right? So we make an effort, prayerfully make an effort, and, and God comes in and he opens up the scriptures. And he changes us. He changes an attitude. He helps us to love somebody. You make an intentional effort, an intentional decision. I'm going to love that unlovable person in my life. 
And all of a sudden, guess what? You love that person. Okay? It wasn't because of your effort. It's because the Holy Spirit came in and helped you. Um, and so when we want to... Um, when we want to grow in our sanctification, we have to practice what's called the spiritual disciplines. And I hope that's a familiar term to you. It may not be. Uh, it's more of a, uh, another archaic term, right? Because as a people, uh, we're, just, we're not that into discipline anymore. Okay? And so it may not be familiar to you. Uh, the first is there's many. People don't always agree on what the spiritual disciplines are. Um, there's many, and the first one shouldn't be a shock to anybody, right? Uh, if you have been to this church more than once, or you have ever heard Mike teach, the first one shouldn't, shouldn't, shouldn't be difficult for you, right? It, it's read your Bibles. Um, take God's Word in every day. Let it transform your thoughts, your attitudes. Read it. Meditate on it. Memorize it. Chew on it. Turn it over and over to your mind. You know, maybe you sit here uh, week in and week out and you hear Mike talking about read your Bibles and, and you hear me just say it and, and you're just like, yeah, I get it, I get it, I get it. Okay? Um, and maybe you, you've tried to read your Bible and, it, and it's just dry or uh, you, it's too hard or whatever. Can I tell you, we want to help. If that's you, we want to help. Okay, no judgment, no condemnation. Um, we want to help you. So talk to one of the elders afterwards. Or talk to somebody you know as a mature Christian. We'd love to recommend a, a good translation or a, a reasonable reading plan, right? Where you're not reading 25 chapters a day. Um, or just to offer some encouragement for you to read the Bible. Okay? Uh, nothing would please Mike more than for all of us to be in the scriptures daily and to be growing and to be uh, becoming biblically literate Christians. I, I can say that with certainty. Okay, another spiritual discipline is prayer, and I'm going to confess that I struggle with this. Um, I try to emulate my wife, who prays all day, unless she's sleeping. And, uh, but I just it, it's a struggle for me. But we need to pray. And we need to pray about all kinds of things. So in your bulletin, there's a prayer calendar. We can pray for each other. That's one of the main ways that we build up the church. Um, you know, here's an idea. Find one or two people this week that you're going to pray for and ask them, what can I, what can I pray for you this week? Uh, be a good way to get to know people you don't know, too. All right? And then do it. And then pray. Pray that... Pray that they're good stones. Pray that they're being built up. Pray that they have opportunities to, to share their faith. Uh, pray for each other. And again, you know, the elders would like to help with that. Maybe ask one of the other elders, because I said, I struggle with it. But, um, or maybe we hold each other accountable for praying. And then the last one I just want to talk about is evangelism. Uh, that's not traditionally been a spiritual discipline, but I think as we move more and more to the Facebook and the Twitter generation where we're not talking to each other face-to-face, -face, um, it should be because we need to be disciplined about our uh, sharing our faith with each other. Uh, just one last statistic. Pew, 
uh, polled people, and this is an old statistic, it's probably 2010, um, polled evangelical, evangelical Protestants. 80% say that the Bible commands us to share our faith and that it's important that we do so. But only about 40% ever do. Okay? And, and there's lots of reasons for that. That's probably a sermon in itself. Uh, but clearly there's, there's more work we could do. There's better work we can do. Okay, uh, those are individual actions. There's corporate actions that we need to take to build the church, to do our part to. And uh, the good news is, is we're taking part in one right now. Okay? When, we, when we sit in church and we hear the scriptures taught, we're helping to build the church. Um, in between services, when we fellowship, and, and we're hopefully encouraging each other, and we're loving on each other, and we're spurring one another on to love and good deeds, we're building the church. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, like we did last week, or was it two weeks ago? Two weeks ago, um, we're building the church. When we come and celebrate a baptism, like we did two or three weeks ago, we're inviting and celebrating people becoming part of the family of faith, we're building a church. You know, we love each other well, when we forgive each other, when we hold each other accountable, when we live in a way, in a, I want to call it a covenant community, okay, when we really care about each other, we really love each other, we're really concerned about each other, we're building the church. And not only are we building a church, but we're also witnessing to God's grace and his mercy in our lives, and as we're extending that to each other. Okay, now, I just want to wind down um, and everybody said amen I'm winding down okay I'm going to talk just briefly about the second part of that of Jesus statement in Matthew 16 right because on your study sheet there's I will build my church and then there's these ellipses 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 however you say that which means something comes after that and, and this is the part that comes after it so Jesus said uh, that I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. No. We have gates. They're, they're not very impressive, right? We have a gate back there. But, but in the ancient world, gates were some of the most fortified parts of cities. And so it was an opening in the wall, and if your gate wasn't strong enough to withstand an attack, somebody could get in and then your city falls. So they were pretty fortified, pretty beefed up parts of, this, of the city wall. If you think back to Nehemiah, you know, Nehemiah was, was talking about building the wall and building the gates, and he was paying attention to the gates. And so the gates come to symbolize uh, a seat of power or a source of power or uh, a stronghold. Okay, so when Jesus says that, he says, uh, you know, the gates of hell, anything that Satan can throw at the church is not going to be enough to overcome the church. It doesn't matter what it is. It's not going to work. Um, you know, not only will Satan not be able to overcome the church, but the church has overcome Satan in Christ. If you look at Colossians 2.15, um, Paul says he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So since Satan knows he can't destroy the church, all he's left with is to accuse the church accuse us and say, look, look, he did it again. 
He did it again. Look, uh, they're messing up. The good news is that we, we have a risen, living Savior who's at the right hand of the Father who lives to intercede for us. That's what Hebrews tells us. So no matter what Satan says, Satan throws at us, we mess up, and we do mess up. And Jesus goes, nope, that one's mine. He's mine. He's okay. He's covered. All right. Um, you know, we live in a time, cultures turning against us, um, our beliefs about marriage and sexuality, uh, which the church has held in common for 2,000 years. Uh, it's called bigotry compared to racism. Our own government uh, is increasingly hostile to Christian citizens, seeking to curtail liberties and um, talking about you know maybe losing our tax-exempt status and all those kinds of things. Our, our neighbors are turning away from the church because it's just not relevant to them. And we look at Matthew 16... And Jesus says, I will build my church. We don't have anything to fear. We don't have anything to fear from a hostile political culture. We don't have anything to fear from a culture that hates us. Um, we can rest in the promise that Christ is going to build his church. And nothing's going to prevail against it. And I'm going to close with Matthew, 18, or Matthew 28, um, 18 through 20. And I hope that's a familiar passage to everybody. Um, it's the group... Well, has come to be called the Great Commission. And Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You know, shortly after... Uh, they left that beach. They turned the world upside down. They began to turn the world upside down because they believed the promise that God had made and they believed the one who made it. And we can leave here today and we can do the same thing because the one who made the promise is still alive and he's still working. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that uh, you have promised that you will build the church. Uh, dear God, we thank you that uh, you use us to build it. Dear God, what a privilege it is to, uh, to work and to serve and to struggle. Thank you, dear God, for the certainty of knowing that uh, uh, the results are not dependent on us. Thank you for your sure promises, dear God. Um, dear God, I just pray that uh, we worship you and uh, we love you more. And uh, dear God, just that you be with the rest of our, our service. Amen. Mm-hmm.